Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Scheich. I'm the Deputy Director of the German Historical Institute, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Institute and to the lecture in our current seminar series on narrating the 19th century new approaches. It's my particular pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest speaker tonight, Professor Johannes Paulmann from Mainz, um, who is going to deliver the third lecture in this series, which started um, with Sir Richard Evans at the beginning of May and then continued with Professor Willibald Steinmetz's lecture two weeks ago. As those of you who have, been, who have attended these previous seminars will know, we have invited four eminent historians to enlighten us on how to write a history of the 19th century in a historiographical environment that has changed considerably since the heyday of research on the 19th century in the 1970s and 1980s. Globalization and the rise of non-European history, the dominance of contemporary history within the historical profession and the wider public, new conceptions of what constitutes the political, these are just some of the challenges that face historians working on this period today. All four of our speakers are uniquely placed to discuss these and other questions because they are all involved in writing general histories of the 19th century for various publishers at the moment. Professor Paulmann has embarked on a history of 19th century Europe, which is under contract with C.H. Beck in Munich, and this volume promises to be a very stimulating book. So we are very much looking forward to what he's going to tell us about his experiences with writing such a book. But before I hand over to Professor Paulmann, let me just introduce him very briefly. Um, as was the case with Willibald Steinmetz two weeks ago, Professor Paulmann is no stranger to, the, to this institute, um, coming from the University of Munich, where he had done his PhD on British public policy on employment and unemployment during the first half of the 20th century. Johannes Paulmann joined the GHI London as a research fellow in 1991 to work on his second book, his Habilitation. The outcome was a highly acclaimed volume entitled Pomp und Politik, Monarchenbegegnungen in Europa zwischen Ancien Regime und Ersten Weltkrieg, Pomp and Politics, Monarchical Encounters in Europe from the Ancien Regime to the First World War. The book was awarded several prizes and became a seminal text for the new culturally informed history of politics through a close study of state visits and their ramifications during the long 19th century, pomp and politic reinvented the history of international relations and rescued it from the stigma of being old-fashioned and out of date. It brought the whole field back into the mainstream of historical writing. Following on from this um, major volume, Professor Paulman widened his approach to international history further. Over the last 15 years or so, he has published extensively on cultural transfers, on the history of international institutions, cultural diplomacy, the relationship between colonialism and nature, and more recently on international humanitarian aid and humanitarianism in general. His publications are too numerous to um, mention them here in detail. I just want to um, give you two or three titles, um, which I think are particularly noteworthy in this context. The first one is um, an influential volume on 
cultural transfers between Britain and Germany from 1998, Aneignung und Abwehr, interkultureller Transfer zwischen Deutschland und Großbritannien im 19. Jahrhundert, which he edited with Willibald Steinmetz um, and Rudolf Moos, who is sitting over there. Then there are two further edited volumes which I want to highlight. Um, both happen to be published in our Oxford University Press series. Um, the first one is The Mechanics of Internationalism, Culture, Society, and Politics from the 1840s to the First World War from 2001. And the second is Dilemmas of Humanitarian Aid in the 20th Century, a volume that is hot off the press. The advanced copy arrived last Friday and will be published officially in a few weeks' time. So unfortunately, it's not yet in the glass case next door. I should probably also mention that together with colleagues, Professor Paulman is writing a blog on humanitarianism and human rights, so you can follow him and his work online if you want to. For the last few years, Johannes Paulman has been the director of the Leibniz Institute of European History, a large and prestigious research institute in Mainz. Before he took up his post in Mainz, in 2011, he was professor at the International University in Bremen from 2002 to 2006, and at the University of Mannheim from 2006 to 2011. He has also held prestigious guest professorships in Atlanta and at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. And during the academic year 2009-10, he was, as some of you may remember, the Gerda Henkel professor here at the GHRL and next door at the LSE. So it's a particular pleasure to welcome Professor Paulman back to the Institute, welcome him home somehow. Um, it's a great pleasure that you could make it to London. Thank you very much for coming and we are looking forward to what you're going to tell us about um, how close is the 19th century. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for this kind introduction and of course for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be in here um, and speak. Um, and I'll talk today about how close is the 19th century, contemporary reflections on a history of Europe. That's a history of Europe I've been writing for some time and I hope to finish by the beginning of next year. The conflicts or achievements of the past have often been crucial for the historiographical classifications of the 19th century. For authors looking back, these conflicts or achievements still appear to be relevant to their own times. For until recently, the established experts on the past were themselves a part of the communication structures of the late 19th century. The writers of the older standard works were born before or shortly after the First World War while younger historians have a personal link to that time in the shape of their own grandparents. Thus, the 19th century is still, to some extent, close to us, but for most people, it is already merging into mediated cultural memory. Anyone born in 1990 is now more than three generations away from the turn of the century. Or to make my point in another way, in 2009, the oldest surviving veteran of the First World War, former aircraft mechanic Henry Allingham, who was born in 1896, passed away near Brighton at the age of 113. Today, we can no longer speak to contemporaries. At most, we can converse with historians who met them. 
Historiography generally either interprets particularly the second half of the 19th century as the Ancien Regime finally giving way to the Industrial Age or presents it as the precursor to Europe's crisis-ridden modern period in the 20th century. At the risk of simplification, three different approaches to the 19th century may be distinguished. One is based on the social and economic and environmental history. A second draws on the political system of the European nation-states. And a third concentrates on Europe's process of interaction with the wider world. And I will now introduce these three uh, approaches, um, starting um, with the uh, social, economic, environmental history. Conventional social history has seen the 19th century as the century of the bourgeoisie. The work of the German historian Franz Schnabel is an example. Schnabel, the son of a merchant, was born in Mannheim in 1887 just a few years before the First World War veteran Allingham, whom I mentioned earlier. He was appointed Professor of History at the Technical University of Karlsruhe in 1922, a 19th century institution of higher education that epitomizes the bourgeois character of the period. Between 1929 and 37, he published a four-volume history of Germany in the 19th century, in which he explicitly placed German national developments in the context of European history. The key words for Schnabel were constitution and machine. His work combined the history of science and technology with political history, which, following Ranke, he saw as shaped by conflicts about political participation between monarchy and popular sovereignty. According to Schnabel, the constitutional idea, the empirical sciences, and modern technology, the century's essential innovations, were supported by the bourgeoisie, which had set the century's pace since the French Revolution. Although Schnabel's work remained incomplete, going only as far as the middle of the 19th century in any detail, it offered a comprehensive interpretation of the period, which Schnabel saw as leading up to a cultural crisis. He drew up a narrative of the features of the time, which he saw as moving from the bourgeoisie's positive achievements towards the secularization and atomization of culture. It evoked a world of relative values determined by the capitalist and materialist thinking. This was another new period, the 1920s, when Schnabel was writing his work at a time when after the Great War, the 19th century seemed to him to be utterly over. His view of the 19th century was one written from the perception of crisis in his own time. The British historian Eric Hobsbawm, who was born in Alexandria in 1917, grew up in Vienna and Berlin, and was educated in London and Cambridge, approached the 19th century from a similar direction, but with other uh, reasons. He wrote his three-volume history, published between 1962 and 1987, during the Cold War and decolonization, and focused on Europe. He did not give the century a single name. Instead, he called the period from, from the French Revolution to 1848 the Age of Revolutions, which he saw followed by the Age of Capital from 1848 to 1875 and the Age of Empires from 75 to 1914. Hofstrom argued that the interpretive unity of the whole century was founded on a dual revolution, economic and political. The progress of the political part was interrupted, he claimed, 
when the liberal bourgeois revolution did not give rise to a political and social revolution of the masses. From the middle of the century, however, the bourgeois revolution moved forward. Industrial capitalism and the social order associated with it spread around the world until the early 1880s. Yet, the triumph of the bourgeoisie would not last long. According to Hobsbawm, who took a Marxist line, the internal contradiction of liberal capitalism shaped the decades that followed, followed on from 1880. Organized labor in the wealthier countries called for the abolition of capitalism. Civil dignitaries were increasingly pushed to the edges of political participation as political participation expanded. Private, family-run companies lost out to large corporations, which employed salaried managers. And critics of imperialism made themselves heard inside and outside Europe. The material progress of the bourgeois age overtook its original social supporters so that, according to Hobsbawm, this specific phase of European economic and social life ended in 1914. The capitalist economy, the revolutions and mass culture of the 20th century shed the liberal bourgeois character of the previous period. From now on, the defining centers of history lay beyond the old continent. Hobsbawm and Schnabel both described the fundamental changes which material transformations from the 1850s in particular had brought with them and emphasized the central role of the bourgeoisie in the 19th century. Both embedded developments critically in a long-term narrative of crisis, one from a liberal perspective, focusing more on cultural history, the other from a Marxist on economic and social history. The second half of the 19th century thus appears as an accelerated phase of transformation, which gave way to a new universal time, no longer bourgeois and European in character. Other historians have provided contradictory answers to the question of why structural changes from 1850 did produce, in fact, tangible progress, despite the crisis of the 20th century that followed. British history provided a spur to scholarly debate here because fundamental developments began there early and may therefore regarded, and many therefore regarded the country as a model. Asa Briggs provided a positive view in his book, The Age of Improvement, uh, 1783 to 1867. Born in Yorkshire in 1921, the historian drew on the optimistic interpretation of liberal Victorians, showing that the costs and conflicts which the extensive changes brought with them were offset by incremental reforms that led to substantial material and moral improvements. Behind this history, which Briggs published in 1959, was the contemporary idea that successful modernization meant the transformation, the transition from ag agrarian to industrial society with a simultaneous reform of the political and social order. Looking back from after the Second World War, Briggs regarded Britain as having successfully negotiated this change as early as the middle of the 19th century. Younger historians at the end of the 20th century take a more critical view. Thus, a few years ago, David Eastwood described Briggs' age of improvement as an age of uncertainty. Drawing on conservative and radical opinions, especially from the early 19th century, Eastwood stressed the great difficulty of understanding and coming to terms with the social consequences of economic change. Economic and social uncertainty shaped the experience and expectations of contemporaries who fiercely debated the social and moral consequences of capitalism. 
This interpretation may have been inspired by discussions on the political economy that Eastwood, born in 1959, experienced in the Satsa years from 1979. Moreover, it also forms part of a general criticism of modernization theory on which many earlier accounts, including that by Briggs, were based. In this intellectual edifice, the developments in Britain and North America were generalized as the normal route for Western Europe and individual countries, both European and non-European, were judged by whether they de deviated from this path and when they would achieve the expected progress by means of reform. In this way, the interpretation of British history served, at least implicitly, as a model and benchmark for the whole of European history. The generalization of a particular case has since then increasingly been replaced by an emphasis on the many and diverse paths to modernity, with more account being taken of defensive forces in the process of change. Moreover, assessments of the consequences are overall more skeptical. This can be illustrated by looking at environmental history. If we see the environment as a fundamental historical category, like economics, society, culture and politics, then the 19th century is also a period of transition in this area. Similar to the social and moral costs of capitalism discussed in Britain during the 1970s and 1980s, the effects of industrialization, the effects industrialization had on the environment came into the focus of historians in Germany and elsewhere. In his book, Der Unterirdische Wald, Energiekrise und Industrielle Revolution, uh, the Subterranean Forest, uh, Energy Crisis and Industrial Revolution, the historian Rolf Peter Sieferle explored um, a fundamental transition in energy supply from wood to coal. A developed European industrial economy was based on the exploitation of fossil fuels, especially coal, which from 1820 to 1890 gradually replaced wood and animal and human power as the most important supplier of energy. Coal-fired machines not only increased production, but also made possible industrial processes which, along with the social phenomena that accompanied them, especially urbanization, placed new strains on the environment. Towards the end of the century, the 19th century, the chemical industry and electricity generation had a huge impact on nature through the use of potassium salts in agriculture, air and water pollution, the diversion of rivers, the construction of dams and lignite mining. Around 1900, a number of contemporaries perceived the destruction as a threat, especially in the European industrial areas. Others were already arguing that at least what was left of untouched nature in Europe and the wilderness outside Europe, now under threat from modern civilization, should be protected. Changes in the energy regime on the one hand and the electrical and chemical industries on the other exemplify the two sides of progress in the late 19th century. The unleashing of seemingly unlimited productive forces and their cost in terms of environmental impact. An unsustainable economic and social model that many saw as neither feasible in the present nor practical for future generations came into being at that time. Beginning in the 1980s with the ecologist Eugene F. Sturmer, the term Anthropocene is being used popularized by the atmospheric chemist Paul J. Crutzen and others since 2000. This is the name given to a period starting often with the 19th century in which the influence of human behavior on the atmosphere is regarded as so significant 
as to constitute a new geological epoch. These are interpretations put forward no longer by historians, but by scientists. Historiographical controversies um, about the cost of material progress can draw on the experience of people in the 19th century. The dark side of the economic development, social tension that repeatedly and forcibly discharged themselves, bitter political struggles and competing cultural forces marked the era after 1850, no less than a belief in the possibility of general improvement. Both views were, to some extent, dependent on each other. They were linked in the experience and expectations of progressive change. The Swiss historian, Jörg Fisch, born in 1947, therefore saw accelerated change as a formal feature of the era. In fact, he considered it as a characteristic of modernity as such. In his History of Europe, published in 2002, Fisch identified the idea of equality and increased labor productivity as the two major forces of the second half of the 19th century. The idea of legal, political, and social equality aims at a future condition that, however, can never be fully achieved or must be repeatedly re-enabled by constant efforts to ensure equal opportunities. The increase in labor productivity, the second feature he highlights, by contrast, was based on a state of permanent change resulting in the constant redesigning of production processes and new products. As a dynamic principle, growth had a price. And therefore, there were always losers, but it had no fixed goal. Despite their transnational nature, historians often describe social and economic developments in Europe within a national framework. Indeed, a more strongly political history approach placed the principles of the nation-state at the center of interpretations of the 19th century. The 19th century was regarded as the age of national movements when the nation-state triumphed as the principle of internal, internal and external order. This view is European and add up, adds up to more than the sum of national histories when it is linked to the development of the system of states. Theodor Schieder's Staatssystem als Vormacht der Welt published in 1975, is an example of this approach. Born in 1908, Schieder had been personally involved in the nationality conflicts of the post-First World War period. He worked on ethnic policy in the German-Polish Eastern Territories in the late 1930s as an academic expert, and from 1942 to 45 held a professorship at the University of Königsberg in East Prussia. After the Second World War, as a widely regarded professor at the University of Cologne, Schieder worked on European nation building. He believed that the principle of the nation state shaped Europe from 1870 onwards. Once the states, following the suppressed revolutions of 1848-49, had integrated some elements of the liberal national movements. Until 1914, both in the ethnically relatively homogeneous states and in multi-ethnic empires, the state functioned as a force for order standing above heterogeneous societies. So, Shida's interpretation. In this interpretation, the international political system of sovereign states, along with the conservative elites, formed a fundamental factor of stability. Within this system, Europe was a unit. Its impact, however, was not limited to the continent, but went far beyond its borders, as during imperialism, the European states, system of states dominated the world. Within its framework, European rule, norms, and material culture spread around the globe. 
according to Shida, a Raumrausch, an intoxication with the notion of space, seized the states and under its influence they largely divided the globe between themselves formally and informally. The collapse of relations between the European powers during the First World War and the linking of the national principle to the democratic principle in the right of national self-determination led, in this view, to the end of Europe's unity and domination of the world by 1914. In the interpretation based on nation-states, the time after 1850 appears as a period of transition to the conflicts of the 20th century. Schieder was probably dealing, indirectly at least, with his own past when he later researched the historical origins of the ethnic conflicts which he had participated in as a young man, developing a typology and putting them into a comparative context. The stress he places on the role of the state gives Schieder's account a certain German slant, but he treats general problems in the European historiography of the 19th century, which many other historians have described in similar way within the national history paradigm. Recently, Charles Mayer from Harvard, who was born in 1939, has spoken abstractly of the age of territoriality. According to Mayer, for a century from 1860s to the, the for a century from the 1860s, the national elites had the technical and economic expertise and the political will to exercise state power widely and permanently in a clearly delimited, delimited space, rather than only selectively in the form of strategic control. This not only required them to have effective control of a particular territory, but also a space of identity that is a geographical area to which a majority of the population fed loyalty and within which they expected to be socially and culturally secure. 19th century territorialization thus continued earlier, earlier processes of state building but with the addition of a new quality both within the framework of the nation state and in the older new empires of the period. Mayer's interpretation dating from 2000 appears plausible against the background of globalization today and the partial loss of state control over clearly delimited spaces, the acquisition of which in the 19th and early 20th century it attempts to explain. Mayer does not deny the contemporary attractiveness and effectiveness of the nation-state model, nor does he reduce the transformation of statehood that happened at the time to purely national importance, but generalizes it in the context of states aspiring to concentrate their control over the population of a uh, territory. This perspective, however, underestimates the continued existence and transformation of nation-state aspects, expressed, for example, in Germany in what Dieter Langewiese has called federative nationalism, in the Habsburg Empire, constitutionally in the Austro-Hungarian dual monarchy, and elsewhere as in Ireland in separatism, and in Brittany in regionalism. It also omits the alternative form of political order represented by 19th century empire, which was in a relationship of tension, but also reciprocity with the European nation states. While the interpretation presented so far built on internal European social economic environmental and political national movements, others take European relations with the wider world as their starting point. Two significant new works of this sort are Chris Bailey uh, and Jürgen Osterhammel's uh, books. These two historians 
whose work originally focused on the British, Indian and Chinese empires do not write mainly on European history but on world history for which European actors in the 19th century acquired special significance. They present global developments not as a one-sided expansion of European power and culture, that was Shida's perspective, but as a reciprocal, if increasingly unbalanced, interdependency. In this respect, Europe was not a province, but temporarily moved into the center, while also being exposed to various non-European forces. Its predominance was precarious, Neither the British nor the German historian offer a simple history of our own global presence. Rather, they expose the specific and especially the imperialist dimensions of 19th century globalism. The time frame is clearly wider here than in the national history interpretations. A long 19th century appears as a transitional phase, which is described as the birth of the modern world, 1780 to 1914, in Bailey's case, and the transformation of the world in Osterhammel's case. Bailey, who taught in Cambridge, divided the whole period up into a number of turning points which were not sharply distinguished from each other but characterized by agglomeration. In his view, a period of convergent revolutions from 1780 to 1820 was followed by a second revolution wave around the middle of the century, which, depending on the field, went on into the 1860s or even 1890s. This was the time of the genesis of the modern world. Crucial changes took place in the process of state building, in the establishment of an industrial economy with all this implied, and in the image of the world as modern or in need of modernization. These global processes in part ran in parallel and in part were interconnected and their outcomes was growing internal social and global differentiation. From the middle of the 19th century on, the distance grew between Europe and the rest of the world, with the exception of the United States and Japan. The ability of European actors to establish social and economic relations over long distances increased sharply compared with the time around 1800, when Europe globally integrated in many ways, but according to Bailey, did not yet in 1800 differ substantially from other world civilizations. European domination, which grew out of its increased projection of political power and capacity for networking, was incomplete and temporary in the second half of the 19th century. Nonetheless, Europe had become one of the essential models and controllers for modernity, which other societies had to deal with, whether they wanted to or not, and which, on a global scale, had both a uniform and a differentiated impact. Osterhammer's history of the transformation of the world in the 19th century resembles Bailey's in essential respects. It focuses more strongly on Europe at the center of historical events, but he describes Europe also within the framework of general processes and puts its uniqueness in perspective by comparison and an analysis of its relations. Chronologically, Osterhammer's account is more open. In particular, he continues his account into the 1920s because he sees the consequences of the First World War as being the result of the transformation he describes over the 19th century. Bailey's work, by contrast, really ends in 1890, and he suggests that the period up to 1940 was merely a phase of acceleration during which the birth of modernity was completed. More important than this slightly different periodization is that Osterhammel does not divide the long 19th century into phases. Instead, he investigates partial systems 
processes and orders that influence the life of people. Migration, the economy, international politics, empires, frontiers, cities, religion, science. In these and other areas, he describes characteristic developments, particular chronologies, and general and regional variations. Osterhammel imposes no uniform time frame. It's merely the concentration of various of these processes of transformation that marks a sort of internal focus of the period from the 1860s to the 1880s. From the perspective of world history, the author proposes characteristic features, highlighting particularly imbalances and stresses. Among these features are an asymmetric increase in the efficiency of labor productivity, military power and state control, an increase in accelerated mobility made permanent by organization and technical means, and uh, the more or less successful emancipation from constraints and conditions of tutelage that were formerly taken for granted. We've learned a fair number of interpretations of the 19th century, some based on the analysis of social, economic, and environmental history, others draw on the political system of the European nation states, and recent ones concentrate on Europeans' interactions with the wider world. They're all by male historians, and in this sense, they are very much 19th century. At least concerning grand narrative, historiography has been a business of men since that period. Moreover, judging by the speakers in this series, which of course also reflects publishers' choices, it still is. In narrating history, the 19th century is very close to us, in a rather uncomfortable way in this respect, if I may say so. The interpretations I've presented to you all had a contemporary dimension. That is to say, they were close to the concerns of the times in which the historians conceived them. Beginning with the crisis of the interwar period and ideological divisions, continuing with the Cold War and modernization theory, including its critics, and finishing with the most recent times and the problems of globalization. Writing 19th century history meant writing contemporary history. Accordingly, the authors understood the past in categories that still very strongly stemmed from the period under investigation. With the 19th century, now that it is merged into mediated cultural memory rather than the memory of the living become a foreign country? Of course, historians always have a vantage point and will never completely free themselves from the concerns of their own times. Methodologically, we rely on the corrective power of the sources in order to avoid arbitrary, subjective storytelling. Nevertheless, narrating history on a larger scale is like tidying up. We arrange our findings in a frame. The questions are what the frame is and which the criteria are for tidying up. Let me illustrate what I mean by using a painting from the period. Here you see Vincent van Gogh's room at Arles from 1889. <clears throat> In 2004, a Swiss artist and comedian, Urus Verli, tidied, tidied this picture up. Everything is now on the bed or below it. Well, compare this to interpretations such as the one by Theodor Schieder. You see immediately that the nation state as a category somehow violates many historical items. As an interpretive frame for the 19th century, it's like a Procrustean bed. Replacing it by territoriality, as Charles Mayer suggests, allows us better to recognize items that were beyond nation states, either in terms of states' reach or in terms of belonging to particular nations. 
Territoriality, though, as an interpretive frame, acknowledges the guiding force, the idea of the nation state exercised at the time. I continue my exploration of the interpretive categories and frames with the help of a second painting. Uh, it is an art class taught by Paul Klee at the Bauhaus in 1929-1930. It's all about color. The art students uh, at, the at the time already played with them by shifting the combination, mirroring the arrangement and turning it, uh, turning the set. These are, it's from 1929, one of the uh, students in class. Uh, um, took off from Paul Klee. Tidied up by Verley in 2004, it looks like this. Sorted by color, the forms are stapled somehow precariously on top of each other. This is like sorting the 19th century by values or ideological points of view. Schnabel did so according to his liberal attitudes and criticized the cultural turmoil that the machine age had caused by the 1920s. Hobsbawm sorted it following a Marxist vision of historical progress that included consecutive capitalist crises. The ideological order of things is very much of their own period and the contest between liberal democracies and extreme regimes. Although both historians took their categories from the 19th century, their arrangement simplifies the color scheme and erases the 19th century patchwork. The final painting I wish to use for illustrating how 20th century historians have tidied up the past is René Magritte's Golconde from 1953. It depicts men in suits with bowler hats. They are floating against the background of red-roofed terraced houses in mid-air, or they're raining from the sky, or they're rising like balloons. You can't really tell, depends on the viewer's point of view. Tidied up by the Swiss artist in 2004, the picture looks like this, all arranged by size. This is an arrangement for measuring progress and its costs, like Asa Briggs and David Istvold and Rolf Peter Siefeler. It also captures the productivity of the period, of course, the idea of equality as represented by the man's uniform dress, and the openness of future conditions, which Jörg Fisch highlighted in his narration. The frame for this image is, of course, modernity. In addition, Verli arranged Magritte in a yet another way that, may, that we may call postmodern. By taking away the backdrop of the houses, the emphasis now on the relations between the men. Historians such as Christopher Bailey and Jürgen Osterhammel narrate European history of the 19th century, 19th century very much in terms of relations across borders and with the wider world. The original title of the painting, by the way, point in the same direction. Golconda was a citadel in southern India near Hyderabad, ruined in the 17th century and famous for its diamonds mined in the vicinity right until the 19th century. By the 1880s, Golconda was a generic term used to refer to any source of great wealth. Thus the painting of the bourgeois man in the urban landscape by its title refers to the European wealth and its non-European connections. The bourgeois period with its ideologies and crisis, an era of growth and claims to equality, the age of nation states and territoriality, the birth of global modernity and the transformation of the world, as we've seen, these interpretations have always been influenced by the respective present-day concerns of the male historians, who looking back are firmly anchored in their own times. 
often the period appears at the beginning of or transition to 20th century modernity, a period that is seen as ambivalent if not catastrophic. With the gradual transition of the 19th century, more than three generations after its end, and intermediated cultural memory, academic opinion may distance itself a little from assessments that are critical of the present and prefer to recognize lasting achievements. However, even today, we are not free of a contemporary viewpoint. A narrative of the 19th century and the analysis of the decades um, up to 1914 in particular cannot fail to have certain priorities. What then are my perspectives? I have three major ones. The first is the persistent transformation of European societies. Comprehensive change, touching on almost all areas of life, affected all social groups and countries, even if it was only through a change in their relative position in Europe's social or power political order. Contemporaries experienced wide-ranging material change. A number of things that had previously only been conceived could now actually be realized in practice. State power over society became noticeably more assertive. In a way, the 19th century appeared to open doors for a kind of utopian realism of sorts, or less emphatically expressed, a pervasive belief in progress. A fear of change matched this belief in progress in some quarters. For among the agents of change were those who really wanted to resist or at least regulate it, and only modernize defensively and unwillingly, and those like the nobility who simply wanted to stay on top. Depending on time and place, even those who identified themselves as the agents of change, such as the bourgeoisie, sometimes wanted to limit change, for example, when it came to the political participation of women. Progress, however, in whichever direction, seemed to advance steadily and inexorably, despite and with the cooperation of the steadfast forces who left their mark on change in state and society. Thus, there was persistent transformation in both senses of the word persistence, continuous change and checked or restrained change. Beharrliche Transformation is what I use in German. Um, to be sure, general transformation has been a sign of modernity already from around 1800. The specific forms that it took from the middle of the century and which distinguished Europe from China were first the economic and environmental transition from an energy regime based on solar power to one based on fossil fuels. Its second feature was the socio-economic transition into industrial society with increasing stress on agriculture and the resulting impact on the landscape. The third political characteristic form was the creation of the modern citizen with an allegiance to the nation-state, an expected allegiance to the nation-state, such that the peasant became a Frenchman or a German, but in any case a member of a nation. Consequently, claims for political participation followed from this required belonging, including claims from women. Fourth, a differentiated scientific system anchored in institutions developed. This greatly increased the ability of Europeans to understand the world and affected almost all areas of life. And lastly, the foundations were laid for a popular mass culture which was highly controversial because it questioned cultural hierarchies. My second focus of interpretation, transnational entanglements, connects with the dynamic of a transformation and the belief in progress. To most Europeans, the future seemed increasingly open and full of energy. In general, until the beginning of the 20th century, an optimistic view of what was possible prevailed. People believed that they had to shape their own progress, 
even it just, if it just meant not to be outdone by the competition. This resulted in a complex interplay between competition, attempts to differentiate, and cooperation, which themselves drove progress. Although this dynamic interaction increasingly took place within a national framework determined by the nation-state, it was essentially driven by cross-border exchanges. Especially in science and industry and in migration, transnational and transregional movement, both above and below the level of the nation-state, was characteristic of the second half of the 19th century. Internationalism in the sense both of increasingly dense economic, social and cultural networking and a deliberately mostly reforming political international organization and regime formation significantly shaped the period. In this respect, essential foundations for cross-border interaction, which were not destroyed by the First World War, were laid for the 20th century. Although the practice and point of view of the nation-state were in reality dominant from 1914 onwards. The nationalism and internationalism of the 19th century were in many ways mutually interdependent, but they were also interwoven with imperialism, as this period was one of European empire building, both inside and outside Europe. My third interpretive focus, the precarious world domination, is on relations with the wider world, an essential dimension of European history, particularly in the second half of the 19th century. The imperial framework, which distinguished this period from early modern expansion, was crucial for this, as was the fact that European imperialism had a transformational impact on European society, culture and politics. Europe's period of global dominance was limited to the decades before the First World War, and it remained precarious. The world historical perspectives of recent research can provide useful categories for history of Europe. What needs clarification is to what extent global brands were recognizable in the various European countries and societies and what different forms occurred. What asymmetries were there within Europe, within this global context? Where were conditions similar? Where did they begin to differ more strongly? We must also ask what significance the general processes of change had for Europe's role in the world. Although Europe is at the center of my interests. Historically, it did not necessarily provide the crucial agents, but was itself exposed to forces, developments, and consequences of events whose origins lay beyond its borders. In European foreign relations around 1900, too, the future appeared as open. In the international political rivalry between nation states and empires, in the mission to civilize the world, and elsewhere from a non-European perspective, indeed, in emancipation from European domination. The foundations for the modernity, in inverted commas, of the 20th century were laid in Europe between 1850 and 1914. All were crucial and some of their effects can still be felt today. Thus we are justified in speaking of the first European globalization and of the century of Europe as Dieter Langewiesche has called it. On the surface, these three priorities, persistent transformation of societies, transnational entanglements and precarious world dominance, these three priorities make the second half of the 19th century close to our contemporary concerns. Certainly our societal order is changing continuously and entanglements across borders are manifold in and outside Europe. The formal dominance of the world, however, has been over since the 1960s, but the effects of that brief rule still make themselves felt in many countries here and overseas. Europe as a whole is today struggling with its role in the world. There were clear indications of the precarious nature of, of its dominance, the precarious nature of its dominance already in 
1898, Spanish-American War, 1904, Russian-Japanese War, and 1917. Moreover, the world is struggling with a legacy of Europe's century. The call for provincializing Europe is not simply a demand for removing it from the center of attention. As put forward by Deepesh Chakrabarti, it is also an analysis of the way European categories have shaped our perception of reality and thereby the description and narration of the history of the world. We are, according to this interpretation, living in a post-colonial frame of mind shaped very much by 19th century colonialism. As professional historians, and I now come to my, uh, and I will now conclude, we need to be aware of not writing back into the past our concerns, framing the 19th century according to our own categories. That is why when the publisher requested me to put an image to my view of the 19th century, rather than picking a tidy one, I chose a photograph of an untidy nature. This is the... Tour, uh, it depicts the Eiffel Tower under construction in 1888. This image signifies the ambitions of the time, the belief in progress as much as its achievements. Until 1930, the Eiffel Tower remained the tallest building in the world when the Chrysler Building in New York surpassed it. However, it did not stand on its own. It was part of a mission to spread European values and ideas across the world. The frame for the iron construction was the 1889 World Exhibition, celebrating at the same time the centenary of the French Revolution. From French perspective, this is certainly contemporary history. From a European perspective in 2016, the universal idea may appear still close to our minds. Yet the emphatic declaration in iron and steel of its universal applicability through European rule, however, serves as a reminder of the fact that the 19th century is already a distant country. Had I chosen a different image, I might look close again, though. Here you see the Cologne Cathedral in an almost finished state around 1880, that is, in the same decade as the Eiffel Tower. The steeples were pointing towards heaven as much as the Parisian Tower reached for the sky. The image thus takes a very different stance on where the 19th century stood and towards which aims it was striving. Yet there's more to it than that. The cathedral was about to be reopened in, in a big ceremony in the presence of the Prussian king and German emperor William I. However, the Archbishop of Cologne would not be present because he had been gone into exile. He was living in, in Maastricht. The Dome chapter, together with many notables of the city of Cologne, were also to excuse themselves. This was, after all, the time of the culture war between state and church, not just in Germany, but also in many other places in Europe. Religion in conflict, as much as a revitalization of religious belief, marked the period. Sounds familiar to us, even though the opponents may have changed. I hope I've shown you that writing the history of the 19th century has been and still is contemporary history. Put in these terms, the period is close and foreign to us at the same time. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>